Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. Today is November 12th, 2020, and here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. We're back. It's time again for our college football sprint with Zach Smith. It's going to be like a 800 meter dash this time because we got a lot to talk about. Um, hope you guys are ready, but I'm excited. I'm excited for today um, and all the stories we had this past weekend. And but let's start with Rutgers. You know, it, it's it seems almost like a rewind of the week before. Three completely dominant quarters, and then in the fourth quarter, it's like I don't know if it's the foot off the gas or just falling back, but we allow a team to get back in in one quarter of the game. Zach, why is that? What what what, what do you think is the reasoning behind it? Well, I mean, you, you saw a number of things happen. One, I think this defense is not – I mean, it, we're, we were so spoiled last year that, that we, we don't realize kind of what is normal. And uh, not, that, not that we – it's almost like the, the whole COVID situation. Not that we need to accept this as a new normal, but yeah. it is – it's different, right? Things are different. I mean, you went from the number one defense in every analytic, pass defense, run defense, red zone defense, covering, pass rush, you name it. They were the number one defense in America last year. And this year, we're talking 55th, 62nd. Like, it's just different. Like, um, So, one, I think the defense is, is needs to improve a bunch. We don't have dynamic pass rush at all. Our best two pass rushers are interior D tackles. That's yeah. awesome that we have those dynamic guys inside, but we have to have an edge threat. And Jonathan Cooper certainly had fulfilled that to an extent in, in the Rutgers game. But I think you're just seeing – as a group, we're not as good as we were a year before. We had some guys leave, first-rounders, like some of them generational talents, and we didn't have generational talents behind them. And that's just the reality of it. Um, you also took a great player in a slot corner and Sean Wade and put him outside, and he's just he's just going through some growing pains in that spot. And yeah. on top of that, you're facing Greg Schiano, who knows everything about the defense, everything about your program. everything. He's went against Ryan Day's offense in practice day in, day out. And on top of all that, he decides to throw 50 million trick plays at you. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like that combination is you're going to you're going to give up some yards. Well, that that's actually that's what I wanted to talk about with you is that their offense and the plays that they chose to run were just I mean, at, it was wild to watch the game just because I did not expect Rutgers to try so hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that was that was definitely the one thing you noticed. I mean, I think this is the, the lowest margin of victory in the in the series history. I mean, Ohio State has won by 35 or more points in every time they've played. And what you saw was a little shift in culture for Shiano. Those kids played hard. They fought till the end. And it they they really I mean, like you said, they just they played all the way to the fourth quarter, even though they were down 35 to three at half. I mean, they yeah. you could see he's he's got a culture building there. What do you think about um, they ran that, I think, twice on kick returns, the uh, across the field uh, lateral. It's like a 40 yard pass, basically. Um, what do you think about that as a tactic in football? Do you think it's it's a meaningful way to to play? Do you think it could be a part of a regular routine? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest. We, we directional kicked my entire career and I was a special teams coordinator for many years. And I believe in it to my core. And that is like the. It's almost like the last ditch effort of a team to say, oh, my gosh, like they're going to smoke us. They're going to just destroy us in this kickoff. Let's try something and just like 
almost like jumping off a boat and trying to swim to shore. It's like they launch it across the field and I've never seen it work until, and, and to be honest, it didn't work on Saturday. People want to bring it up. They threw a throwback on the punt return. The kids still have made 14 people miss. Like it wasn't like yeah. he was just wide open and waltzed yeah. in the end zone. Yeah. So uh, people do it against directional kick teams. It's a last ditch kind of a trick, trick way to try to beat it because going against a directional kick you think about it you're pinned on either sideline and you have all 11 guys attacking you like you just lost two-thirds of the field so it's it's a great it's my favorite thing about special teams is is the ability to do things like that and that throwback thing i mean we we scored a touchdown at florida on it kid kid threw it back kind of muffled muffled it and we had a guy get over there and, and scoop scoop the fumble for a touchdown so it's very risky but teams do it and 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 also the trick plays is the fans need to look at is it's an it is an acknowledgement by Shiano of how tough of an opponent opponent he's facing for him to go to it at that level. Like yeah. this is really what we have to do to even have a shot of of doing anything against this team. So, you know, it it was interesting, it made the game more interesting than it actually was. So I didn't mind it. Um <laughs> <laughs> so More it's interesting than it was is the quote of the day <laughs> <laughs> right now we're let, let's talk about this running attack right it's like watching the game is this and is this just that ohio state is shifting its philosophy to pass first and the running game is secondary or do we really have some issues in the running game and if so what are they well, I think it's it's like anything else. Uh, a great football coach is is going to f- accentuate his best players, right? And so I don't think it's a cultural shift or a an ideological shift to a pass-first offense. I think the reality is we have a first-round quarterback, first-round receivers, and sixth-round running back. So yeah. what do you want? Who do you want to touch the ball? <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's. I think they need to get a run game going. Um, or else Justin's going to start seeing some bizarrely different pass coverages that are not as run centric. But I mean, it, it it's definitely an issue. It's it's a weakness. Um, I, I love Master Teague for his for what he is. Right, he is a short yardage back. He can run through anybody for two yards. Uh, but he's still. I mean, he. I want. I can't remember. He. I think he's a hundred second or hundred twelfth in the country in yards after contact. So that doesn't that doesn't equate for me. If you're Jerome Bettis, you got to be Jerome Bettis, right? You got to break through tackles and get like 10 yards after contact because you're yeah. just this rumbling, tumbling bus, right? He's not. I mean, he goes down easily sometimes. And and I, I just think he, he's he is great at what he does. He's a marked, markedly improved pass pro run back over J.K. Dobbins. I mean, he's it's night and day pass pro because yeah. J.K. was awful at pass pro <laughs> and, and he's really good. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, it's a gift and a curse. Like, what do you want? If Justin's going to throw the ball 35, 40 times a game, you want Master in to protect him, yeah. right? But if you want a guy that's going to take a, a, a run play 80 yards and maybe make three people miss, it ain't going to happen. It's not him. Yeah, and, and Steel, Steel Chambers um, seems to have shown us a few signs, right? But he can't he can't hold on to the ball. Tell that's us what that does, <laughs> what, what that does and how that impacts a, a young player. How do coaches respond to that? It's, you have to bench him, right? Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, you have to. You, you, that, that's something that there's certain things that are core values of the program that you just doesn't matter who you are. You can't you can't kind of cave in on them. And who cares if he's if he's dynamic if he can't hold onto the ball? It doesn't matter. You're going to lose games because of that. You 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 might probably won't lose games because you're only getting five yards of carry. You're going to lose games if you fumble three times. 
So that's just something that Tony has to get fixed in practice. I mean, just you get a bat, uh, one of those ball security bats, and just beat the hell out of him when he has a ball in his hands. That's what you do <laughs> until eventually he's like just it's second nature to just clench that ball tight high. Yeah. You know, to be fair, when uh, Garrett Wilson started, I remember he had he muffed quite a few kick returns and punt returns his first year. So maybe it is just a little bit of being on the big stage as being a young guy. Yeah, I'm sure that has something to do with it, you know, and 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 you always see guys when they get into games, they start doing some things that maybe they aren't accustomed to doing or they don't do in practice where now the kid sees he's got his opportunity on the field and he's trying to run faster. So that ball gets loose because he's not holding it high and tight, mm-hmm. which might slow him down. You know that the big stage can expose a lot of things. Definitely can. On the offensive side, I saw that they were running a lot of, you know, very, very short rollout passes to the running backs using um, a lot of deception downfield, which I, I really appreciated. Do you think that's a alternative to the run game that can be effective for Ohio State? Yeah, I mean, they're doing a great job with play action, boots, nakeds, those type of things. And, um, and I think it's it's definitely another way to get more high percentage, you know, those eight-yard gains, those nine-yard gains that you have to have. And, and if it's not in the run game, you need them somewhere. And I just look at what – Clemson does with Travis Etienne is, is and they didn't they didn't couldn't do it against Notre Dame which is part of why Notre Dame won but they do a great job of when the run game's not going they get him involved in the pass game and, and yeah. you just talked about it if you get a, a guy like Trey Sermon in the game maybe he's not a between the tackle back I don't know but you can do things with a quarterback like Fields and Ohio State's doing a lot of it where it's quick touches it's easy high percentage throws where you're getting those those chains moving a little bit without having it handed off so yeah i 100% that's what they're doing and they're doing a great job of it yeah let's 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 talk about bia right now right now we're not looking exactly like bia um obviously we're replacing two first round cornerbacks and jordan filler who's a who's showing that he he deserved to be higher than a 6th round pick as a starter with the rams right now so replacing that is difficult Right. Oh, yeah. You mentioned moving Sean Wade from the inside to the outside. I've seen a couple of plays, like a couple of the TDs. It seems like he's really trying to make the big play, uh, yeah. flashy play sometimes instead of just doing what's fundamental. Then we also lost Cameron Brown. And now we have Tyreek Johnson, who when I looked at that kid's high school tape, I was like, this is one of the best, best players I've ever seen play. Yeah, no but doubt. He's getting his first shot playing and he's adjusting from safety in high school to corner in college. So should we just have patience here or are there some fundamental issues that we also need to address? Well, I mean, I, I obviously I don't know what Tyreek has done since I left, but he definitely was um, a very highly rated guy that came in and still had a ways to go. The talent's there, but I, I, I it's it comes down to, how much do you want to put faith in high school film or recruiting rankings compared to when guys develop and grind and grow and, and improve? And like, where is he at as an, as a college level corner? And obviously he's not where he needs to be because he's their fourth guy right now. I mean, really if he was their fifth guy and now he's their fourth guy because Cameron Brown got hurt, but uh, going back to your, your initial point, I think what, what you're seeing is Sean Wade doing a little bit too much. He's trying to go for interceptions when he could go for PBUs. He's, 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 he's also adjusting to playing on the outside. And then you have, you lose a guy like Cameron Brown, who was their, their fourth corner last year should have been their second corner this year. Seven banks kind of bypassed him. So he was your top, one of your top three. That's a huge loss, especially yeah. considering the group isn't playing as well as they played last year. And then I think seven banks has probably been the, the, 
a, a shining light <laughs> this yeah. through three yeah. games. I mean, he's he's played really well. And uh, Sean will get that that <clears throat> shirt up. That's not going to be something that is a season-long issue. He's just trying to go for some big plays, not really playing as physical as I think he's capable of playing. But he's going to be one of the best corners in the country by the end of the year. That's all I know. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a freaking talented guy, and I mean he's always just a blast to watch. But I agree, watching him this year, it definitely feels like he's still getting used to this new role, as opposed to like thriving. And you know, it's like you can see the thought before the action sometimes, and how he yeah. plays. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, I mean that's I think we can we can we can button up Rutgers for now. We'll come back and talk about Maryland a little bit later. Let's talk about this Notre Dame win. Brian Kelly finally beats a team that's worth beating, right? And uh, let's talk about the game. I was really, really impressed with the running back play in that specific game from Notre Dame. That's the thing that stood out for for me is in all three phases, pass pro in, in, in the passing game and in the running game, I don't think I've seen a more complete overall game from a back since since Zeke was roaming the field at Ohio State you know what he uh, he was my player of the game in my episode that went out today uh Tuesday uh was Kyron Williams he was he was ridiculous and and I've always liked him I've liked him as I watched him all year uh he's he's explosive he's a he's a solid back what I, he's also uh, my biggest knock was he's small he's not a big back but what he did on Saturday he had 31 snaps in pass protection and only allowed one quarterback pressure in 31 snaps which is just absurd especially for a small back I mean you saw him a couple times fit up on a blitzing linebacker and I mean hit him right square in in the nose down the middle and stand him up and hold his ground and you're like whoa like it's the best pass pro i've seen all year for sure maybe in two years it was phenomenal and the other thing you saw was i don't ohio state fans won't want to hear this and they didn't like it when i said it before but notre dame's o-line is the best o-line in the country and it's not even close yeah. I mean, they yeah. Ian Book had forever to throw the ball. Kyron Williams had lanes you could drive trucks through. It was domination up front. Yeah. That, yeah. that let Kyron run. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That stood out to me as well. It looked like some plays they were five yards ahead of the line of scrimmage. Sometimes oh. pushing those backs. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Like Kyron would get the ball, and by the time he hit the heels of the offensive line, he gained two yards. And you're like, wow, that was easy. <laughs> You know, what was exciting about this game, too, I mean, obviously the the missing Trevor Lawrence is a big asterisk on the win for Notre Dame, which, you know, is a bummer. Um, but it, it's just, for me, college football over time is the most entertaining thing in sports. I just yeah. don't think anything else comes close. It really is. It really is. And you... you... You watch a kid like DJ Uyunglele. You see what yeah. I did there? It took me like 100 it. practices to get, get that. DJ Uyunglele goes in and throws for 400 yards, just dominates. And it's like, that's to me, that's to me the best part about college football. You know, the number one overall draft pick probably or two goes down and this kid steps in and just all of a sudden everyone is excited for next year's Clemson team because yeah. they're like, this kid's a freak. They know he's not going to play anymore this year, but he's a freak. <laughs> to come into a game on the road like that and play oh. the way that he did is just, just amazing. And Zach, I think I think we got a, a business for you. You got to start a, a Samoan name <laughs> app since well, you can you can get them all right. Most <laughs> yeah. people are patient because it takes me two days to learn one name. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, but I do it. I'm not going to sit here and call him ukulele like everyone else in the country. Like I, I'm, like, I'm going <laughs> to learn his name and call him what his real name is. It just might take me a minute. <laughs> so does this win um, or this game really change your sense of where Clemson and Notre Dame stack? Does it, is it a mark at all against either team or for either team? I mean, I think it's a mark. It's certainly a mark for Notre Dame. They've, yeah. they have not been able to beat a team on, on this platform or stage or level in maybe I mean, since the 90s maybe i mean all the way back to 2012 when adam alabama beat the brakes off of them and every game since um so i think it's a huge huge win for not only notre dame but the midwest brand of football yeah because now you you say all right we have two legitimate teams in the midwest how yeah. many how many do they have in the southeast right now they have alabama clemson if you want to call that's the atlantic coast but you know down south everywhere has one or two teams the Midwest has been one for like 10 years. So yeah. now we got a second one that, that finally showed that they can play tough. They exposed Clemson's line on both sides. Clemson had a bunch of injuries on defense, but their offensive line was supposed to be one of the best in the country. And Notre Dame dominated their offensive line. So I think it showed us that Clemson maybe has, has a, a couple leaks in the boat. And it showed us that Notre Dame's ready for the national stage. I don't, I don't know if they're ready for to win it all, but they're ready for the national stage finally. And and it's also valuable. The other thing that's interesting is that Notre Dame is technically an ACC team this year. Right, right. And yeah. you're seeing for the first time in a long time, Clemson actually having a second somewhat legitimate team. And the first year that happens, <laughs> <laughs> they, they play in the regular season and they lose. Right. So, right. you know, there's, they're more than likely going to be a rematch in the ACC championship game. And what happened to Zach? If if you remember last week, I mean, Notre Dame must have been listening to this podcast because, Zach, you said explicitly, you know, Notre Dame is basically one of our Big Ten teams. They're a Midwest yeah. team. and We need them to do well. Yeah, right. Yep. I'm, and Notre Dame fans love to hate me, but I've been saying it since I started the podcast. Like, I want Notre Dame to be relevant and good. Like, I want the brand of Midwest football to be better than the South. Like, I would love nothing more than Penn State be great. Like, yeah. It'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Penn State, so what happens though if if we get down to the final game and Clemson beats Notre Dame in a close game? Do they oh. do you have to put them I mean, I there? think I think you have a heck of an, an issue right now with that loss because the reality is Clemson probably will win the rematch, right? I'm not here to say they're going to, but they probably will. Yeah. So you got to look at the national landscape like what happens now, right? Okay, yeah. so you can deduce that Ohio State probably will end the season undefeated, right? Barring yeah. some upset, they don't really have a tough game coming up outside of Indiana. So let's, let's say they're in the playoffs, right? Then you then you got to look at the ACC, all right? Clemson and, and, and Notre Dame. Let's say Clemson wins that rematch. They both have one loss. Now you go down to the Southeastern Conference. Let's just assume Alabama beats Florida in Atlanta, right? Yeah. So now you have Alabama, Ohio State, and then who else? Yeah. Right. Clemson, Notre Dame are clearly two to talk about. Texas A&M has a hell of an argument. They lost to Bama early and beat Florida. Right. And then you go then you go to the, the, the not so likelies. Right. Yeah. Oregon. Can they run the table and will that sample size be big enough to make the playoffs? And then BYU undefeated with one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And my favorite Cincinnati and Luke Fickle. Like you have nine teams that you're looking at to fill the four spots and it gets really sticky. If yeah. that happens now, if Notre Dame beats Clemson, then you're good. Clemson's out, and that's that's the third team. And now you just need to argue about the fourth. Yeah, that's that's going to be uh, 
a, a mess if we get to that point. But, you know, as we know with college football, we got a long way to go and there's going to yeah. be a lot of crazy stuff that happens. But I'm, I'm telling you, I'm starting the campaign now. It is 2020. You know Cincinnati will win the national championship. It's 2020. Yeah. Like, that's too fitting for the year we're having. <laughs> imagine imagine if it's a Cincinnati-Ohio State national championship. Oh, my gosh. And then Luke Fickle a, defeats the Buckeyes. <laughs> that would be a bizarre day in sports. Oh, but I and the other, the other thing to think about is is if Ohio State plays Notre Dame in the playoffs or the national championship, just that that would be the most monumental game yeah. in the history of the series. It it's a be. fun matchup, man. It's always oh. such a fun matchup. It is. It is. Now, now let's let's talk about that team you said you wanted to be good, Penn State. <laughs> <laughs> they got the brakes beaten off of them by Penn State. I mean, by Maryland this weekend. Yeah, See, it's so, it's so second nature. It was supposed to be Penn State. Here, <laughs> right. Breaks off of Maryland. But Maryland is showing us something right now. I think it says more about Maryland than Penn State. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's I think it says a lot about both, really. And, and you know, I've, I've even said it on your show. I've said it on my show. Mike Loxley is really, really good. He just is. And he got to his younger brother to come in. And now he's so now he's got a quarterback. He's got some skill and he does. He's really intelligent X's and O's and kids play for him. Like you talk about a guy that can rally the troops. He's unbelievable. Uh, the, the rapport he has with players. And you know why he is? Because he's just real. Like he talks shit. He cusses. He he doesn't try to be all uptight and asshole and professional like he's himself. But he demands demands a high level of performance. So he's and kids love him. Kids love him. That's why he's a great recruiter. That's why he's been a phenomenal football coach. And so I think it's definitely a testament to the fact that Maryland is on the rise with Loxley. But they had no business playing with Penn State, right? Like they don't have the talent yet. So it definitely says a lot about the state of of the Nittany Lions right now. And and it's just definitely time to hit the panic button. I mean, it might just be a push reset and start over next year. But man, Penn State looks bad. Were they 0-3 last in the Big Ten? Yeah, I can't remember. Probably after after all the mess happened is probably the last time they've been this bad. Yeah, the thing is, they I, there's always hype about them, but I feel like some years they they I, it's always the game against Ohio State, right, where they play lights out. But it's yeah. outside of that, I just sometimes feel like they're just not locked in as a team. Yeah, I, it's it's a different type of program. That's all I really know. I mean, it's it's uh it's it's that way in recruiting i mean we we when we would lose a recruit to penn state it was because penn state is fun and they're cool and they're and they're hip and they like it's the coaches are really cool and it's like okay well we're not at ohio state we're not cool at all like we we just really coach you hard and develop you that's so if you want to go there go there and they do so it's a different culture there than than yeah, i'm i'm accustomed cool. to what do you mean by that like is recruiting visits and when they when recruits would talk to their players they're like no these coaches are so laid back man they're chill they're cool and it's like okay we're not like and i don't know how you can be you you kind of have to coach guys really hard and, you know every now and then you got to co- be an asshole like you just do like yeah and that's not what they do there and it's yeah. very different but uh they've had success but i in my opinion that's why they can't get over the hump you yeah, know what, Zach? That, this is the this is the knowledge that you dish out, man. That I'm just like, wow! I never ever would have known that. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 very interesting to hear, because um, it seems like James Franklin is a is kind of a no, he's he's a cool guy, but it seems like he's no nonsense at the same time. But that's that's very surprising to hear, and one of the more fun things that happened because you know this, you you know you establish yourself as one of the top recruiters in the nation. 
the the recruiting dynamic that this potentially could shift, right? With Penn State really has relied on the Maryland, Virginia, Northeast kind of area for recruiting for a long oh, yeah. time. And immediately after the game, Maryland took a shot. Uh, with, the, most savage, the most savage tweet I've ever seen in college athletics. And it's it, it goes to show you that there's the game, but there's also the game behind the game. And mm-hmm. and talk to us a little bit about that in terms of what why Maryland needed to do that to establish themselves recruiting wise in their backyard. Well, I mean, that's that, you know, Maryland has been fighting that they, they want to recruit the DMV area, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Um, that's what they need to do. That has to be their footprint. And if they're going to be, if they're going to ever be that upper tier big 10 team, they have to get those top, top chase young players to go to Maryland. Mm-hmm. They have to, or else they're never going to play with Ohio state or Penn state. And so, yeah putting a beating on Penn State the way they did and then tweeting out the the tweet with the graphic that says you were we are yeah. it's just like oh shit like <laughs> shots fired and they're big yeah. shots <laughs> but it's Crazy. critical it's critical because they can't lose kids and Penn State has a slew of Maryland and Virginia kids on their roster and and Maryland can't lose those kids if they're expected to compete with Penn State so when they get this opportunity this is like it's like a teachable moment right with your kid if your kid does something bad it's an opportunity to teach them and gain some momentum, right? Some growth. That's what Maryland had. It's like an opportunity here where we beat them. We got to capitalize and make sure everyone knows about it. Talk a little shit, get people to sway our direction. So in two years, we can get that sophomore in high school because he thought our tweet was awesome. Talking trash. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That stuff is valuable. Really valuable. These kids pay attention to all of that. Um, Especially these days. I oh, remember yeah. it, a few years back, there was that, I think it was Tate Martell hurdled that kid. Oh, yeah. School. Yeah. That tweet went crazy. Crazy. Unbelievable. That's why, I mean, that's why these, you'll see, you're going to see it more and more. And I don't know that there are any right now, but college coaches are going to start TikTok accounts. Like, it, it's just, that's the way the youth trends. You're going to see 60 year old men doing like TikTok dances. I promise <laughs> you're going to see it. Well, I already, yeah, I already see it. Yeah, you guys. I, I haven't paid attention. I, I'm sure you have. I'm sure there's already coaches and people doing that. Definitely, especially in the basketball world, you see it all the time. Oh I, yeah. Oh, I bet. More. I, I even feel like I feel like I remember Saban doing something funny too. But you know, I'm not going to quote myself on that because I don't believe it myself. It's almost kind of weird to see these coaches who have like a hard ass reputation do like a TikTok dance with their with their daughter or something. Right. And it's it's a weird thing. There's a it's lot of athletes weird. on there that. Their kids want them to do a dance with them, so they do it as a family. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I did. Now that you mentioned, I do remember seeing Luke Fickle do a TikTok dance yeah. one time, and I was like, of all people in the world, uh, last person I think I would ever have guessed to be doing a TikTok dance is Luke Fickle. We actually <laughs> talked about it with him when uh, when he came on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that that is that is hey, hilarious. Anything for recruiting. That's that's the that's the company <laughs> line. Anything for recruiting, and. We had more Big Ten news. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to say anymore about this school up north. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will say this. I feel like we'll, we'll not talk about them because they're not worth talking about. I'm very impressed with Indiana and what they're doing. As a basketball-rich school, they look like a well-coached team mm-hmm. that's playing at an optimal level. And when you're like a lower tier program that's all you can do is to expect to play above your level of talent 
And I'm really impressed with the fact that that's what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, they're Indiana is the second best team in the big 10. And I don't know that it's even close really. I mean, they're so well coached. Their defense is so fundamentally sound. They, they go extremely hard. They tackle well, the stuff that a well coached team does, right? You don't have to be talented to be well coached and to be disciplined and to play with fundamentals. You still might get beat by 30 if you're not talented, but you, you can do those things. Anyone, us three could go play football and we could do those things. We would suck, but we could do them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's what's cool is Indiana has a little bit of talent now. They're, they have a couple guys that were maybe underrated, got developed, and they're doing those things. And so you're seeing the, the second best team in the Big Ten is the Indiana Hoosiers. Who'd have thought? It's unbelievable. Never, unbelievable. ever would I have guessed that. And Never. It's 2020, and that's how life is now. Right. Yeah. Now, now, now let's talk about potentially the worst team in the Big Ten, um, the team that they beat. We talked, we, we talked about it quite a bit last week. Do you fire this guy midseason now? Do you have to send a signal now, or is it is it overdoing it? Is this just is this just a, a bad season and a bad team that that's an aberration? Uh, see, so uh, I'll play. The, I'm I'm the Michigan AD right now, right? I'll play. I'll play the role for you, V. Um, <laughs> I I definitely I don't know that I fire him today. But I'm doing everything my, every day. I'm not worrying about any other sport. I'm not talking to anyone in my depart, administration, nothing. From now until the end of the year when I fire him, I'm working every day to find the next Ryan Day. Because yeah. in my opinion, the, the trend in college football is moving towards and has been moving towards finding that elite coordinator at a big time place and anointing him your next head coach. That's what Clemson did. That's what Oklahoma did. That's what Ohio State did. That's what Georgia did. That's what teams are doing, right? Yeah, right. The the days of needing to be an established head coach are long gone, right? Mm-hmm. And but in you know, my opinion, that's been for, Michigan's issue. What's been that? Doing it for a while though, it's not. It's not like it's recent, right? It's uh, no. I mean, Tom Herman, you know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but, I mean, you you see that at Houston's, but but for for a big time program like Ohio State or Michigan to hire a coordinator. 15 years ago, they'd be like, that'll never happen. But then Clemson did it with Dabo. And Clemson back then wasn't really Clemson, right? They were a second-tier program. But when Oklahoma did it, it was like mind-blowing. Then Georgia did it. Then Ohio State did it. And now it's like, and look at the results they're getting. And in my opinion, it's because you take a a coach like um, Matt Campbell at Iowa State. Great football coach. Maybe he'll be one of the best in the country at Michigan. Maybe he'll elevate them. Who knows? Uh, But they haven't been on that elite step for a while, yeah. right? And Matt Campbell, shoot, he was a head coach at Toledo forever, the head coach at Iowa State now for however many years. He hasn't been on the national landscape, whereas you hire a coordinator who's running you know, 50 kids one side of the ball at Ohio State or wherever, that coach knows exactly how to do it. Yeah. If he's the right so, guy, right? And so if I, if I'm Michigan, that's what I'm doing. I'm not maybe I'm not firing him right now, but I'm firing him in, at the end of the year, and I'm going to make a hire where people go, "What? Whoa, who's that guy?" <laughs> no, we, we we don't like giving uh, giving advice to the enemy, but uh, <laughs> we need that. You have said it over and over um, on our show that we need Michigan to be good, right? I mean, so, I, 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 you, I get you know, Abe, who are some who are some names that you would tell. If you were advising the AD and you're one of these million dollar certain firms, that's a great question. You that's would, a great question. Yeah. I don't know. I'd really have to think about that. Um, who? That's a great question. I'm gonna have to think about that because I don't know. I'm trying to think of guys that I know that are coordinators, but I don't want to. 
So while I don't you think put- about that, I have I have uh, a follow up. This has been, to your point, a slide that we've been watching for quite a few years. Yeah, is it the oh, AD's yeah. fault? Are we beyond the coach's responsibility at this stage? Well, I mean, at some point it has to be, right? You brought in Rich Rod, who was one of the hottest coaches, one of the best coaches in the country at West Virginia. He failed. You brought in Brady Hoke, who was one of the best coaches at San Diego State. He failed. You brought in the prodigal son, Jim Harbaugh. He's failing. At some point, you could just keep recycling big-time coaches that have success somewhere else. At some point, maybe it's the situation they're walking into, right? Maybe you don't have the proper infrastructure or or support or recruiting or marketing or whatever to 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 reach that elite level and uh, so it's going to take a concession by the administration to the right head coach where that head coach walks in and says this is what i demand for us to be successful and the administration has to say yes yeah, yeah. i mean the excuse they keep leaning on is their academic standards and it's it's like, it's, it's, it's criminally so- misrepresented uh, and I'll tell you, as someone who went to Georgia Tech and had, there's real academic standards, like those those players are still <laughs> able to play, you know? Right. We just had yeah. a terrible coach that wanted to only run triple options every single play. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> there's no doubt. Great athletes that are going to the league every single year from that program. And same for Michigan. Great athletes going to the league every single year. If you can't Listen. build a system around that. I'm not going to put any individual kids' academic prowess out there, but I recruited against Michigan on a couple South Florida kids, so they can save the narrative that it's the academic standard. Man, get out of here. I've seen some kids that you, that got into Michigan, and they also offer everyone Ohio State offers. So I hate to break it to you. That's not it. Like, that's an excuse. It's just something they're saying because they feel like that's how they can pound their chest. They can't beat Ohio State in football. They can't beat them in any sport at all. And now, so now they're saying, okay, well, we'll beat you in the books. We have better academics. That's why. It's like, nope, no, you don't. Sorry. That's not the case. And it's also a a very unfair representation of the changing landscape of college athletes. Like, I know these kids that come to Ohio State. Right. They're not, they're not, we're not talking about the John Cooper era (laughs) anymore. No. You know, you're talking about kids that get it done on the field, get it done off the field. Um, And it's, it's, it's an unfair criticism because it, it says something about players and kids at other programs that I don't think is fair and is 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 wrong as well. That's a fact. That's a That's fact. And I'm, I'll tell you right now, we at Ohio State, we rarely, I mean rarely, took a kid that was even close to the qualification standard. Rarely. Most of the time, if he was even even flirting with that low of a test score or that low of, of a GPA, like there was an extensive research done on why. Is he not very smart? Then he probably's not going to make it at Ohio State. He's not the kid we want, right? Or is he does is he lazy? Not the kid we want. There's also other factors, right? Does a kid have an IEP? Maybe he just doesn't learn very well. With a learning specialist, he could thrive here, right? Yep. You do the research and find out why a kid doesn't have a 3.3 GPA, and there might be a good reason. And, and I, I'm like I said, I'm not going to because it would be unfair to a kid, but I could list you 10 players that maybe had an a learning disability or something wrong that when accommodated ended up being like a 3.5 college student, like and just went on to great things. It's like that. That's not always a precursor to just an idiot. Sometimes there's a real reason, you know? Yeah. Such a commentary on our education system too, right? It's just not personalized. It's so mass yeah, oh yeah. market that, you know, a lot of people don't thrive. And, and to your point, V, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up. We, we do need to eliminate the notion of athletes being dumb because that's just right. not the reality anymore. 
you know, yeah. maybe it was in the past. I mean, I don't, I don't know any of those people personally to, to a great degree. Right. But every athlete that I tend to meet these days, especially these younger kids are freaking brilliant. I'm going to tell you, you if, if I were to give you a list and I'd have to think about it, the top 10 people I've ever met, like smart, brilliant, could be president if they were, you know, if they wanted to, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, Joshua Perry, Malcolm Jenkins, like I could go down the list and name 10 people. It's like, wow, that's the most impressive human being I've ever met. Josh right? Perry, like, I, I grew up with his older brother. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful family. Wonderful. Unbelievable. And, and, I mean, and that's so impressed. And that's just two off the top of my head. I, I literally could list 10 right now that could go on to be the CEO somewhere or, and it's like, that's just, you're right. That's a, a horrible misconception. And it's also a cop-out is what it is. It's, it's an excuse. Like, Oh, I, I stubbed my toe. That's why I only ran a four, six. Like, no, you didn't. You're slow. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's very unfair. It's very unfair to characterize it that way. Um, but you know, that's what, that's what losers do is perfect make excuses versus <laughs> <laughs> and you know what it, and never mind that that's how you don't get better right that is, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's how you always stay where you are you, you just stay there because you're making excuses instead of just figuring out the problem and fixing it bro yeah. thank you for saying that accountability is everything right everything it's yeah. like there's more to be gained from assuming everything is in your control and you can always get better than there is from assuming that you have a certain level of skill right? Absolutely. It's just that humble kind of like chip on your shoulder attitude will always lead you the right direction. I mean, they right. look at their opponent that they played this weekend. That That's as far as you need to go to see an example, right? And you know what? Urban used to say it all the time and you see it from Jim Harbaugh. So that's why, that's why I'm hesitant to blame the administration because I watched Jim Harbaugh and he does Urban's biggest pet peeve was BCD, right? Blame, complain, defend. You weren't allowed to do any at Ohio State. Like if a kid wasn't very good, you weren't allowed to blame the kid's ability. You weren't allowed to blame the fact that he doesn't work hard. You couldn't, he would never let you complain about your players aren't any good or whatever. And, and you never would, he never let you get defensive on yourself. And so those are the three things you weren't allowed to do. So the only option was identify the problem and fix the problem. And you see Jim Harbaugh in every press conference, it's complaining about the spot. It was this, this far, Everything he does is blame and complain and defend. He he has a cultural issue within with only in his own body that he he is portraying onto his team. I swear to God, that, it seems like it. That's so wise. Um, my God, Zach, that was awesome. I'm keeping that clip. I'm sharing it with my team. Uh, let's move this thing forward. So, Florida, Georgia. This is, by the way, I went and actually saw this game. Um, not last year, but the year before. And I got to go with, um, sorry to name drop, some of our Lasso family members, uh, Champ and Boss Bailey. And, I mean, obviously, Georgia legends. And, oh, yeah. Uh, dude, fantastic experience. It's such a passionate fan base there. We got to watch uh, some of it on the field, you know. It was, it was sick. And it gave me so much respect for the rivalry that they built and, you know, for the students, it's it's like one of the biggest weekends of, of the year because oh. they all go down. They get uh, down to some of the islands around where they play the game and they just party. So fun game, a lot of culture and, and a lot of tradition around it. And, um, you know, I was I mean, both teams very good this year, but I was surprised to see Georgia not really put up more of a fight. Yeah. I, so first I want to talk about it because I was at Florida for five years and I didn't know you've been. That's the coolest thing in sports. I swear. Just the way they split the stadium right in half, orange and blue on one side, red and black on the other. And then the the Woodstock atmosphere outside yeah. of the stadium is just yeah. insane. 
Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It's that, so fun. That's a whole lot of fun, man. And a it's whole a lot of huge fun. Stadium. Huge. It's it's just it's one of my one of my favorite things that I did in coaching. Not it wasn't the biggest game. It wasn't the loudest or the most heated rivalry. It was just one of the most unique things. So it's that's cool. You got to go too. I'm glad I got I could talk to someone about it. Most people up here, it's like, yeah, it sounds cool. I don't know. I've heard about it. I've heard yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. I saw it on game day one time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that game was man. It. it Georgia was exposed. Um, they, they they have a quarterback issue. And, and so I did a segment, and it, it'll be great conversation for your show and you guys also, is think about Kirby Smart back in May. Yeah. But not only – I mean, he has the one thorn in his side. He just watched Justin Fields almost win a Heisman, and, he's, and he was going to have to watch him this year possibly win it. So that was the one thorn in his side. But he said, all right, I, I, I screwed that up. Jake Fromm, I picked him over Fields, screwed it up. So he went out and got two transfer quarterbacks – the, uh, the kid from Wake and then uh, the JT Daniels from USC, right? He, he brought in two established starters for the quarterback position. And then the, the, the kid at Wake opts out, doesn't play this year. And JT Daniels, he puts him at third string. And they're playing with the most inept quarterback play I've seen in the SEC in five years. I mean, Stetson Bennett is, is a... I mean, he's like the principal's kid that like you're just forced to play. I don't know what if he has like naked pictures of Kirby Smart. I don't know what it is, but this kid should not be playing quarterback in the Southeastern Conference. And they bring in the kid, Dewan Mathis, who's a freshman. I mean, he's going to be a good player, but he's so young and raw. It's just yeah. it, they were a mess. I'll also say, I mean, just keep in mind that Georgia tends to be a little bit um, – the gentlest way to say this is old school, maybe outdated Southern values in terms of how they run their culture, how they run their team, and especially the um, major donors that are around the program. Oh, for sure. Tend to be a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm really using some innuendo here, but old school, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I know there's exactly definitely some weirdness culturally down there that I think it, it's hampering their ability to be great. There's no doubt. Whatever, whatever. Whatever's behind it, Florida exposed it. I mean, they they just I mean they dominated them and they they really went after the kid that I was I was really I don't want to say upset with, but Tyson Campbell, the corner at Georgia, in my opinion, is a first round corner. He's one of the best corners I've ever recruited out of high school. And he went there and he was playing phenomenal until Alabama. Alabama went after him and torched him, and so did Florida. And it's like they found a they they took a page out of Nick Saban's playbook and just went after the kid. And, and I mean, he gave up, I think, like two hundred some yards and three touchdowns. And it was just like, oosh, eesh. What was it specifically that they they exploited about him? Just one-on-one coverage. They just went after him. They threw it. I mean, they didn't even – it's not even like they put their best player on him. It was just whoever was lined up on him, if it was one-on-one, they were taking the shot. And and they hit it. So what would make him such a great player if he can't handle one-on-one coverage? You know what? It's it's, You talk about cornerback play. You saw it a lot with Damon Arnett, right? Damon Arnett, not his last year, but the year before, he would have a game where he looked great and then a game where he would just get torched. And you're like, damn, Arnett, what are you doing? And it's like it, some kids just have a, a different mental makeup where one bad play leads to 30. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And it's like it's really hard to do. If you're going to be a one-on-one corner, it takes a dog mentality and, and a, a short memory and kind of that discipline to if you get beat, forget it, move on, right? It's really hard to do for some people. And I think that's kind of how Tyson is. He's, he's a great kid, big heart, cares a lot, probably gets really upset with himself if he doesn't make a play once and that turns into seven more, you know, and it's, it's, it's a hard, one of the hardest positions to play yeah. unless you're like, 
unless you're just absolute dog or if you're dumb, sometimes that's good because you forget. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it is the hardest position. Obviously, quarterback requires the most, right? Yeah. But in terms of actual skill set, what it requires to essentially play <laughs> backwards <laughs> is is remarkably difficult. And I think from yeah. a technique standpoint, it is the most difficult yeah. difficult position. I don't cool. have... I don't have the background of, of you, obviously, Zach, but um, I got to watch like uh, a lot with Champ um, as he trained some of the newer guys that got drafted into the NFL about a year back. Uh, yeah. We did some content and, you know, just just seeing like the amount of intelligence and awareness that goes into even just body positioning, the way you turn your oh. hips, the way your feet go. Yeah, I mean. It's it's such detail heavy work uh, being a corner because you have to adapt to everything, but at the same time you have to understand the the other player, your guardian's tendencies, plus the quarterback's tendencies, plus right. you have to be aware all around if someone else gets beat, you have to be able to provide some help. So I mean, that's tough. It's so difficult because you're talking about it's 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 intentional movement, intentional fundamentals, right? But it's reactionary. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you combine those two worlds. It's like, holy shit, you want me to do what? Like, I have to take this exact step with my foot at this exact angle. My hand has to be right here. But that's only if he steps there. If he steps here, totally different job description. It's yeah. like, my God, I'm good. I'll run a post. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll, Georgia, Georgia obviously has some issues, but I don't want to undermine how well Florida is playing right now. Um, specifically on the offensive side of the ball, it's really, really, I'm really happy to see the kid Grimes, um, you who you recruited, Zach, um, get in a position where he's shining. He went through a lot. He had to transfer back to Florida, not because he necessarily wanted to leave Ohio State, but because he had some personal and family issues to regain his footing and, and get a chance to play, as well as Kyle Trask continuing to impress um, as a quarterback, I, I think those two things, despite Dan Mullen being their coach, I think we really have to <laughs> we have to give them a, a pat on the back. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm all about uh, deserved credit, right? Like Kyle Trask deserves credit for playing the way he's playing right now. I mean, I, so I have this stat that I always refer to. It's how does a quarterback perform on throws that are 10 yards or further downfield? Because I really don't care if you can throw screen passes or little little quick touches, bubble screens. Like anyone in the country should be able to do that. I want to know how good are you over 10 yards? That's where real quarterbacks play. That's what I always say. That's where the real quarterbacks live, right? And he was phenomenal. He was 12 of 15 over 10 yards, 80% completion percentage. He was just outstanding. So you have to give him credit there. And uh, you have to give Florida's defense credit because they just shut down Georgia's inept offense. The only issue I have with Florida right now from being a national contender is their skill at receiver. And I love Trayvon. He's, he made an unbelievable play in that game. And he's he's made a couple of those this year. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but I'm waiting for him to be a real receiver because those plays are he's a big body, fast guy, and he high points a ball. They're excellent and necessary, but I need a complete receiver, right? And their top five players on offense for Florida in the pass game, top five graded receivers were three uh, three running backs and two tight ends. And so I just I need to see more out of the receiver group. Yeah. To, for me to call it like for me to predict they're going to beat Alabama, it's never going to happen unless they have some receivers that develop and grow and show me they can run intermediate routes and one-on-one cuts and things like that and defeat a corner one-on-one. That's my only criticism of Florida. Other than that, they were outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. They so speaking of, you know, running backs and tight ends, there was a lot of really interesting tight end play that I saw this weekend. There's, yeah, I mean I think that's one of the things that and and I 
I've been, I don't want to say disappointed in Ohio State because they've done a lot of two tight end stuff, but I think that going into this year, that, that that is the trend. That is where college football is going. Everyone has some fast receivers. Everyone has a good back. That tight end position is such a weapon because if you have a guy that is a, a legitimate receiver, like an NFL tight, receiving tight end that can also block and you put two of them on the field, you can be in a two tight end run set and then the next play be an empty with viable receivers. That is the most dynamic ability for a play caller imaginable. And you're right. I've seen it. I've seen it a bunch. Three tight end sets, two tight end yeah. sets. How few and far between are those guys when you're recruiting? Really, really rare. I mean, really rare for a kid that's big enough, strong enough and to block a defensive end that can also run routes, efficiently move and have at least above average speed and hands that they're just really, really rare, really rare. A lot of times they end up being guys like you, the, the guy that, uh, that you probably know from Georgia Tech, Darren Waller. Like they're they're big, tall guys that all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, he's 265. He might be a tight end now. He came in at 210. You know, Th- those are the guys that they just blossom out of nowhere and put on 50 pounds and they can still run. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. And, and you, you brought it up like Ohio State, we always are able to get I think Rucker is one of those guys, right? He like should be. Yeah, when he, he should came be. out of high school, what is preventing? And it's across. It's not just Ryan Day, across our our coaches. Why haven't we been able to have a tight end really blossom at Ohio State? So I'm going to be honest. When you look at like who are the best tight ends in the country right now, Kyle Pitts at Florida. Okay, why do you know that though? Because they don't really have great outside receivers, so he has to he has to to carry that workload, right? Brevin Jordan at Miami because they don't really have outside receivers. Like a lot of times, these guys that look like freaks in in, high, in college are f- a focal point because they are one of the only players that can produce. You know what I mean? And it, it's never going to happen at Ohio State. But we had Jeff Hireman, Nick Vanette, both still playing in the NFL. You know, they maybe caught 15, 20 balls a year, but it's not because they weren't good enough. It's because, well, I'd rather throw it to Devin Smith and Michael Thomas. That's why. Yeah. That, it's just, I, I think it's a lot of times it's just a lack of, lack of talent gives a, a player like that the opportunity to be the main focal point. Yeah, I mean – one uh, one other couple quick things before we before we leave is Hugh Freeze at, at at Liberty. Like I didn't even know Liberty had a football program. This guy went out about as unceremoniously as you could at at Ole Miss. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Probably the reason why he's at a place like Liberty. But it's just amazing to see a program that no one's ever thought of as a football program now be a top twenty five team and. Is he is he really a good coach? It has to say something about him as a coach. Right? I mean, clearly he is, right? I mean, he, you you couldn't say he was at Ole Miss because he bought and paid for everyone, and they still didn't win shit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but what he's doing at Liberty is like it's impressive. But you know, who knows? I mean, maybe he cleaned up his personal life. He's got more time to focus on his job. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 amazing to see. It's amazing to see. And do you think? Um, our guy, we talked about him a little bit earlier. But I think Cincinnati's in the top six, and BYU's up, up pretty high. If, if do you think there there's a legit, legitimate shot of either of those teams getting in? I think there is a legitimate shot, and, and I think it will only come if Alabama runs the table, beats Florida. Alabama's in. Uh, you're, the team, the thorn in Cincinnati's side is Texas A and M. They're going to need Texas A&M to drop a game down the stretch that they shouldn't lose. And if they do, then you're going to say, all right, we got if, if 
Notre Dame beats Clemson again. You got Notre Dame, Ohio State, Alabama. Who's the fourth, right? It, it, I think it's Cincinnati if A&M loses another game because you can't put a two-loss Clemson team in over an undefeated Cincinnati. You just can't put a two-loss team in. And then then it's going to come down to, all right, is, is Oregon a no-loss or a one-loss team? Then Cincinnati's out. So they need a lot of things to happen. It's got to be three clear undefeateds and then a bunch of two-loss teams and Cincinnati's undefeated and winning convincingly. And then they'll sneak them in, I bet. What uh, what's that potential upset for Texas A and M? Is there a particular matchup? No, <laughs> I mean it's going to have to be. I'd have to pull up their schedule, but I, I looked at it last week. I mean the, the SEC is just so down, especially the SEC West. Like, I mean, who are the who who could potentially beat Texas A and M in that conference? I don't. Uh, no one. I mean, I don't. Outside of Florida and Alabama, I don't think anyone. And they already beat Florida, lost Alabama, so I don't know who. I don't think anyone else can beat them. They're going to have to really, or maybe they have like uh, COVID hits and they lose Kellen Mond and another star player. That's a possibility, right? Yeah, yeah. it's always a possibility with the time. Right. That's 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 interesting. It's going to be a very interesting, despite the fact that we have a shortened season. I feel like this is going to be just as exciting of a of a, a stretch run as as any other season with what's going on right now. No, I agree. I agree. I think it's you know what it's 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 going to be different. It's going to be obviously we're already seeing it's different, but it's it's not going to lack in excitement and controversy. Someone's going to get left out, even yeah. if even if two conferences cancel football because of COVID, someone still is going to be left out and complaining. Like it's going to be the same as every other year on that front. It's going to be competitive. It's going to be controversial, and someone's going to win a national championship, and everyone's going to complain about a couple flags. It's like it's just that's what's going to happen. Are, are there any other matchups this weekend? Oh, I haven't even looked at the slate. Um, no, I I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't looked at the the weekend schedule yet. I know we got Maction tonight though. <laughs> who's who, who who's playing in the Mac tonight? Uh Ohio U plays and Miami of Ohio play. I can't uh Ohio University has a game and Miami of Ohio have a game. I can't remember who they're playing, but we got Tuesday Maction. That's all I care about right now. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's 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 see what the Mac's talking about. Right. Oh, man. Awesome, Zach. Thanks so much for your time this week. As, as always, enjoyed this college football sprint with you. All awesome, right, man. Zach. All right, appreciate you, Hey, guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. It's time to hit some news and notes again, Partha. Are you ready? Dude, I'm so ready. We we finally have a new president, um, I guess, officially declared, although our current president doesn't seem to uh, seem to think so. so okay. A little bit of drama here. But Joe Biden was named uh, officially the president by the Associated Press, which is, you know, you and I's trusted source on things. Yes. And, um, of course, uh, Trump doesn't really accept that. Um, and you know, this is an interesting one because there's all this talk about fixing the election and rigging it Yeah. and kind of my take on it is 
even if let's let's assume the election was rigged, right? Yeah. We do know the 2000 election was rigged in Florida. That's yeah. factual. Yeah. So it's karma, man. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the stark difference between this one and 2000 is there was evidence in 2000, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. There's there, they have yet to be able to point to any concrete evidence. And that's what makes this so dangerous. And, and what makes this administration so dangerous is it's like, they know that this is the only way to create doubt. Right. Even if it's like, say, say it enough times. This is this is fascism. That is straight out of a fascist playbook, which is, yeah, you say a lie enough times, people will start to believe it. And they keep repeating just there was rigging, but they're not pointing to any evidence. And for the 70 plus million people who voted for him, who are disappointed and are looking for a reason to be upset, this is tailor made. But it goes back to our conversation last week about undermining our democracy. And right now, by doing this, it's making transition of power difficult. And it's also, there's no clear path. In 2000, that thing was resolved in 36 days. Lawsuit was filed. It was resolved. Al Gore accepted it begrudgingly, but he accepted it for the sake of the democracy. And I feel like that has to happen here, you know, or it, it, there is a real threat to undermining our democracy and undermining the transition of power. You know, he fired. And, you know, my other concern here is seeing the secretary of defense get fired, seeing the lead person in the um, department of defense who's responsible for the voting uh, process, get let go. And I mean, resign. We're in for a very exciting and, probably interesting and turbulent two and a half months here. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you're right. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but I'm not sure I take this super seriously in terms of rigging the election. And I think it's one of those things that um, I, I just don't see it catching the steam that people want it to catch. You know, I yeah. think there's some incentive for this to turn into a headline because everyone wants to talk about like, Oh, look how ridiculous this is. And like, just like we said for eight months, like he's not going to leave the office. And at the end of the day, man, like when it's January 21st, right. The side, the, the, um, the swear in the second that happens, secret service is lifting this dude out the white house and carrying him out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. This this is all just, if they didn't give him attention, this is what I've always said about him is when he does stuff like this, when you mute, if you mute him and if you don't give him the attention, then it's a non-story and we can focus on moving forward. But when you give it attention because you want ratings and you want clicks and you want all this stuff, then it becomes a much larger story. And I think at this time, you know, and Joe Biden said it in his acceptance speech, it's a time for us to come together not continue to be torn apart. And part of coming together as a nation is, is kind of accepting this and moving on whether or not this guy who just lost accepts it or not. If the nation accepts it and we move on, then he just sounds like 
the Trump that we knew before he became president. This 100%. guy, this loudmouth guy from New York that just talks a lot of shit, you know, yeah. but we're not, we're not letting that happen. I think at a certain point, and I was very happy to see what Fox news did the other day, cutting off, um, um, the, the, I can't even think of her name, Kayla, um, whatever her name, the press secretary, the current press secretary, when she was making accusations and really taking a step here and saying, okay, this, this situation, this is too much for, even for us, you know? Um, well, and that, I think the, the Republican party in general too, has seen the opportunity that they don't have to suck up to Trump anymore. Yeah. So the second that that showed up, you saw on election night, they swung the other way on Arizona very early. Yeah. And, uh, that that definitely rubs some uh, some feathers with um, the Trump crew, but um, you know just to draw attention back to this whole narrative. This was a media narrative. Trump was not planning to call this election a fraud or to try and stay in office, but there was a question asked to him five months ago: If you lose in the election, will you refuse to leave the White House? And he's like, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Why do we ask the questions that put these thoughts in people's heads? <laughs> Especially a guy like that. Yeah. yeah, if we had not had that conversation. And that, this was like part of my beef leading up to the election was like, why are we talking about if this guy loses, like all the damage he could do if he loses, right? This is yeah. literally just giving him a bunch of different options that, I mean, ultimately, if the if the conversation was more focused around the actual race itself and the values and the positions, which is what I, I know you and I feel that people should talk about more, then yeah. you don't have these side effects where people are acting like lunatics. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully it's resolved quickly. And my biggest, my, my biggest concern, obviously, is that I do think he is a narcissist and he does have a personality disorder. And like you said, there are different things. As long as we don't do things to trigger those things, that's the best thing that we can do for the safety of our Republic. Because what you don't want to do is like you said, if you put a thought into a guy with a personality disorders head, they're going to follow it. Right. So Let's just let's just be calm and and let this thing go. And I guess in, in that spirit, what would you say Joe Biden at this point as the new president of the United States needs to do? I think he's done a good job of ignoring Trump yeah. himself, a really good job of doing that. But what does he need to do to kind of bring the country together and kind of also shut down some of these media narratives that are going on that are continuing? To so make I it divided. We've now reached the point of what I consider individual responsibility, which is we all need to take responsibility for the words coming out of our mouth, right? Like just you and I having this podcast, every word we say on here has meaning the fact that we post the clips to social media, it has impact on how people yep. think and see the world, right? So we both take that really seriously. We do our research. We think about what we're going to say. And we don't say anything egregious. That's just to trigger people, right? Yep. I think that in general, all of my all of the people that are very, very liberal in my friend group or who I follow on social media, um, or all of the people who are super, super conservative who I follow on social media who are in my friend group, are throwing out, you know, really, really ridiculous notions, but honestly, both 
kind of saying the same thing, weirdly enough. And both sides are destabilizing our democracy with their perspectives. One side saying we rigged the election. The other side is saying you're going to try to break the rules and not leave the White House and you're obsessed with power. And at the end of the day, they're both obsessed with power. They're, yeah. they're not talking about democracy. They're not talking about moving forward, but they're just focused on this like non-issue just to create some drama out of it, right? Yeah. I get that everybody's at home. I get that we're quarantined and it's boring. And I get that people want to be out and about more and living their lives. And yeah. um, dude, I just, I think that there's a point where as an individual, we were talking about accountability with Zach in the, yeah. in the sports segment, right? I think you have to take some accountability for your words and look in the mirror and realize that if you're pushing notions about the world that are negative, then you have to take responsibility when those things happen. Everybody who has ever publicly talked about, hey, Trump is not going to leave the White House. This is your fault. 100%. It's not Trump's fault. He's acting because of the words you said and gave a platform and put on a put through a megaphone. And our words have that power. Yep. You know, and and the thing is, our culture looks at um, drug addiction in a in a through a certain lens, right? Like, when somebody's addicted to drugs, we want them to get help. And I feel like we all need to kind of look at what we're doing on social media and asking ourselves when we post certain things or do certain things, are we doing it for any purpose other than that dopamine effect of, I know this is going to get likes. I know that this is going to get a response. That is a form of drug addiction, right? And like you said, the personal accountability is, is important just like it is with anything else, you know? If you're going to drink, do it in moderation. If you're going to engage in drugs, do it in moderation. If you're going to engage in political banter on social media, do it with some responsibility. I think that that's that's a great way to look at it. And I think you put personal responsibility is the only way that this is going to happen. Yeah, but that's how I feel. And just to touch on another note um, that we have here, uh, we do now have our first... um, uh, vice president of color, first who's a female. Um, we both share the Indian portion of her heritage, which is yep. pretty cool. Um, she's also African-American, which is also really cool. Um, so that's, I mean, honestly, just just a huge thing. And something that I respected in the VP debates when I was watching them was that that moment was acknowledged that it was historic for her to be um, on that stage with that position. Yeah. Um, regardless of what you think about her policies, um, you have to give a lot of respect to Joe Biden, recognizing that representation is very important um, to our society and that our our cabinet, and he said this over and over, it's not just something he said, but that it needs to be representative of what the country looks like now. Um, and I'm excited to see that because regardless of positioning, I think there's something that's offered by this, the unique perspectives that come from unique perspectives, right? Like you, Kamala Harris has had a very unique American experience and Kamala Harris, quite frankly, probably isn't possible in any other country other than the United States. And we need to appreciate that, um, and, and respect it and root for, more qualified people like her to continue to get these positions and hats off to Joe Biden for making that decision. Yeah, it's a good pick. You know, 
what's been interesting too is um, this is you know, kind of a side note, but uh, honestly, a disappointment for me. Um, one of the things that we share is a, a lot of support for Andrew Gang and his policies. Yes. And I really, really admire how, how his mind works, how he sees the world and the rationality with which he thinks. Um, I've been really disappointed with how party focused he's gotten. He just announced this week that he's moving to Georgia to uh, campaign for John Ossoff in that runoff election that they're doing. And I'm all for, you know, support candidates you care about. Um, but I've just, I was really, really bummed to see him just go so party centric when he came as an outsider, had views that were both Republican and Democratic. And I just, I just can't get down with politicians just being for a team. Like, I think you should just be for the U.S. You shouldn't be for one of the two parties. Yeah, it is. I think you're seeing this as politics as usual as Jay-Z. Yeah. Jay-Z says, right? It's like you see this over and over and over again, a bright young politician coming in and then the power, because it's obvious that Yang is realized with his campaign that he needed to align more with the party to have better odds. I think he's positioning himself for a cabinet position, obviously. For sure. Um, but this is what politics does. It's like it forces these people into very in, into consistent moral dilemmas. If you don't pick a party, you can't win as an independent in this country. And we, you know, me and you advocate for third, fourth, fifth, sixth party candidates. Um, and it forces someone like Yang to make a decision that he's looking out for self. Um, and there's no other way to put it, self-interest and, and power, right? He wants to, and maybe there is, you know, there is a pragmatic logic to this potentially too, which is to, for me to do what I need to do, I need to get myself in a position of power first. And I think that that was the approach that Obama took as well. Yeah. Um, and it could work out for him, but like you said, it is, it is not the reason why he generated as much, um, fervor around him as he did. Yeah. And when you go down that path, man, you, you owe a lot of people favors and yeah. it's just, <laughs> it's not great for people to get into these positions of power, owing a whole lot of favors to, you know, the same crop of people. Yeah. That's, that's, that's politics though. And we, yeah. we know that. And that's, that's the reason why we see the malarkey. <laughs> yeah. I'll say I would, I would love to see somebody make a serious run at being an independent candidate, but use modern marketing techniques, digital advertising techniques that, you know, are, are democratizing the way that we reach people and the way that we can communicate with people because while there is a lot of party allegiance and there is kind of the supposition that you have to be really connected into a party, you have to have all their support to win. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where you can rally enough people around you to make a meaningful impact. I mean, Yang even getting as far as he did on, you know, just, just a platform, nothing else was really impressive. And yeah, it didn't translate into something bigger because he was not able to tell an emotional story on the debate stage. It was very rational and that served yeah. tremendously to his disadvantage, but yeah. there's room for a great orator or somebody who has, you know, more, um, I would say like of an emotional connection with the people. Like if, if uh, this is, this is an honest belief. 
I think if Kanye was put together with Gang's uh, campaign team, there's a real race to run there. You, you do believe that. I just I don't do. think I don't think that Kanye has already been branded as what he is. Yeah. Um, I think we need to have someone who's a little bit more rational. Um, I think Kanye is very bright, but he's not very rational. Um, and he doesn't understand a lot of. So let's let's say any person. Right. But with a well executed strategy, somebody who already. Yeah. Somebody who understands marketing, I think, is what you're. Yeah. But I think, you know, the person that I think we're all looking to because you also have to have the money. Right. The person we're all looking to is Bill Gates. Um, uh, Bill Gates would be interesting, but he. He could run as an independent. He could, he could he, genuinely build a. A, a campaign as an independent without. Do you think he's too rich? I think, I think he's. I don't think he's too rich because the way he's been branded or his brand has become is he's the nice rich guy. You know, what I mean, like since he left Microsoft, yeah. he's trying to solve the world's big problems. Everyone recognizes who Bill Gates is. There's no question about his intelligence. There's no question about whether or not he is reasonable um, and there's, he's likable, right? At least yeah. who he is now, he's likable across race. He's likable across um, socioeconomics. Like people respect Bill Gates. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, when you're talking about running a campaign as an independent, the biggest thing is he has the money, you know, yeah. um, he's not Bloomberg. He's not Trump, you know, Bloomberg wasn't didn't have his history. Um, he he would have been an interesting candidate, you know. But you're right. Um, it can't be someone polarizing the first time around. I don't think. Yeah. Um, it has to be someone like him. But he's got too much going. I don't think he has any interest in being the president. You know who I think could be a, a really good fit? The Rock. Oh yeah, he he definitely could. Yeah. He could. I mean, at the end of the day, you need someone who who people like. Yeah, seriously, that's somebody who could who could take the step to be like a governor of California and then make the move. Yep. I mean, you bring up. I mean, it's. I, I'm definitely. I definitely respect your unique position on Kanye West. I do. Um, I'm and, not. I'm not making any statement about whether his policies would be effective, whether he'd be a good leader. You I'm just, just saying that I think he he's a person that with a well-armed marketing team around him, he could actually make a, there's two major parties that typically are splitting, right? Like 50, 50, basically. Yeah. I think he could, he could probably take about 15 points off either party's uh, base. Yeah, he did. He could. It's interesting. It's definitely an interesting thought, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We've got four years now to see what happens in, uh, in 2024. So looking forward to the next four years and hoping that we, um, we make some progress as a nation. That's all we can do. Yeah. So right after the election, Monday after, uh, the new president was announced, um, Pfizer shared, I saw the funniest meme of this, by the way, uh, but Pfizer shared that they are making some progress on a vaccine. Um, I have some beef with this, with this headline right yeah it said that early trials are promising right? yeah that's a headline that they could have shared two months ago yeah this is not breaking news this is not any sort of timeline to a vaccine this is a 
hey, we typically contribute money to the Democratic Party, and uh, we just want to now give them the benefit of the good news. I mean, I, I just, I don't know, I, personally, I just feel like I saw right through it. I don't want to come across tinfoil hat, but I mean, being in the healthcare space, man, like that headline doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, I think what are, what, what do campaigns sell more than anything else? And what, what does America sell better than anything else? Hope, right? right. Obama built his whole campaign around that principle. Um, and America needs hope right now, you know? And I think after a divisive election, after a situation like this, with COVID numbers spiking the way that they are spiking um, as well, I think, you know, I, I was very, very surprised at how much the real market, like the stock market responded to this too, right? It's like it, it created some momentum um, and hope, which I think, again, you know, take away the headline. I think at the end of the day, as long as that hope is then accelerated and pushed forward, I don't think it's a bad thing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of my position. I, I looked at it with a grain of salt, just like you did, right? Which is, this is too early to tell. It's a long way knowing, and a lot of us don't don't fully understand the process of actually from trial to actually bringing a drug to market, how difficult that actually is, even with the FDA working in 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 conjunction and, and helping to accelerate the process. It's a very, very long process. Yeah. Um, and so, although there's hope here, um, you know, and it's funny because both sides tried to take credit for it. Uh, <laughs> Trump tried to tried to tweet out that there's a vaccine generating. Pfizer quickly put out a statement that they weren't part of Operation Warp Speed or whatever he's calling it. It's just it's hilarious to see and observe that part of it, just to understand how deeply rooted and goes back to what we were saying, even in the business world, how much politics plays a role in it. Yeah, 100 percent, man, 100 percent. And, you know, hopefully they do make some progress and we get a vaccine soon. But, man, I don't know. I just I think it's kind of whack. And I think what else kind of adds and compounds to everything is that we, we're seeing the rise of the retail investor. So people yeah. like myself who like to play around on Robin Hood and people who tend to be very reactive, um, which hopefully I don't do. I try not to do that. But my point is that Yes, the markets went up, but it's also pretty well recognized in um, a lot of corporate finance that that's due to retail investors often, not due to um, professional investors, meaning that the amount of influence the regular person has on the market is creating a more volatile economy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we saw the dollar slide last week, then the market went back up. It's interesting. Yeah, there's there's multiple schools of thought on that, right? There's yeah. there are many people who argue that the size of the retail investment market isn't large enough to make that type of impact. But it's very interesting to look at the data on both sides of that because there is a difference now, right, in terms of the number of retail investors that are coming to market and also what you pointed out last week, the access to information yeah. um, on TikTok and other other platforms that help these retail investors drive markets. One of the more interesting ones that I saw um, during the start of this pandemic was um, the um, was the car company Nikola 
was it Nikola or yeah, the, I mean, the Tesla competitor that's basically the Tesla competitor that hasn't even produced a car suddenly yeah. becoming a multi-billion-dollar corporation, then its CEO getting in some trouble. Um, it just goes to show you that there is some influence of these because that's not your traditional market investor that's driving up the value of a company like that. Nor is it as sophisticated of a business as, as Tesla is. It's yeah. a straight down the middle startup where the founder got clever with their naming. Just yeah. To At know the right time. Headlines. Yeah. 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 And they crashed and burned, as as always happens. When you've been in the markets long enough, you realize there are a lot of these companies that shoot up, um, but you are speculating. And it's okay to speculate, um, but just know that you're speculating, you know? Yeah, yeah that's a great point. So a company that um, is, is not speculation, and I appreciate companies like this, Supreme. Yes. Who just got acquired for just over $2 billion dollars. Um, or just was sold actually by Fredericton Groups. I'm not sure who. Oh yeah, Louis Vuitton, right? Yeah. No, no, it was um, the parent company of Vans and Vans. Uh, there it is. Vans and North Face and. Uh, Thank you, friend. Can't remember the name of the company though. <laughs> I'm blanking too, but I do know it was the VC involved in Supreme, and they yep. came in very uh, like relatively early. I mean, it was a few years back. 2017, they came. Yeah, out. right when Supreme had crossed into national relevance, but they weren't, um, to my understanding, and from what I had heard, they were not um, beyond the 100 million revenue mark, from my understanding. It may have been slightly past it, but they were early from the standpoint yeah. of building a brand, is what I'm trying to get across. And for a private equity group, one of the biggest challenges when you're flipping a brand specifically, especially something with so much cultural appeal as a Supreme, is being able to retain the brand's authenticity while you're expanding the channels in which it's distributed through and expanding the product offerings to be able to grow revenue. So Supreme grew entirely on scarcity, right? Yeah. That scarcity is what gave them the authenticity. And then as we saw, fakes just became like the thing everywhere. Yeah. And every brand started replicating their iconic, you know, red background, white text logo. And uh, the fonts is just Futura, uh, I believe, just italicized, which is um, almost the same as Nike's font. They uh, actually uh, stole Nike's it from an artist. <laughs> did they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, um, man. She, um, it's... It's very fascinating. And you bring up a couple of great points. Like from a marketer standpoint, it's really fascinating what they did. Um, because like you said, the thing is how Car I'm very interested to see how Carlisle Group gave it. Based on their investment, they valued it at a billion dollar company, right? Um, they bought 50% stake for 500 million. So it's valued at a, at a billion dollars. And it's like, like you said, way that they built their business their value is greater on to a company like StockX on the secondary market than it is actually to Supreme. But to study their model, I've been fascinated by Supreme, like how they even release, right? Like they drop a line every season and they dry a bunch of different products and they release every Thursday at 11 a.m. So they remind people, everybody, that this is what you need to expect. This is what to expect from Supreme. 11 a.m. comes, products are sold out. They only have 11 stores. They're sold out. And it's not like 
the actual base price of a lot of these products isn't at the same price point as a Louis Vuitton or a Gucci or one of the higher land brands. But what happens immediately is there's a whole economy from the, the first buyer who then flips it for almost 10 times, then that next buyer that flips it again. And it's all based on a theory called conspicuous consumption. And conspicuous consumption is the consumption of goods to show other people that you have money, right? That you're prestigious. And Supreme captured that perfectly, right? And that's why, and it, it plays on human psychology and behavior economics, which is it shows you how much insecurity there is in this in this world, right? Like, and Supreme initially was built on, I, I also, I fully don't understand this, is their founder observed that a lot of just skaters were wearing streetwear and wearing luxury brands like Louis and Gucci and was like, okay, let me create this brand. I still don't understand. I guess most skater kids are from rich families because I don't know how they have the money to consume all this stuff, but they drive the narrative of fashion to a high level. Um, and then also like a company like StockX comes in and does this. So what is, you know, and it's like, I still don't fundamentally understand what the baseline value of Supreme is considering their model, only 11 stores. It's not like they're doing billions of dollars in sales, but there's only 168 companies in the U.S. that are valued at over a billion dollars, and Supreme is one of them. And then now the Carlisle Group came in, like you said, private equity, and was able to do what their aim was, which is come in, make a $500 million investment, got flipped for $2.1 billion. So they, in a period of two years, they made 100% on their investment, right? I really want to get, get your thoughts on this, you know, um, in terms of... Does it even matter if the value is real or not, if the market has a value for it? So value is not real. Value is subjective always, right? And there's like, this is is like my beef with MBAs because they try to use formulas for everything. In fact, a lot of investors try to do the same thing, but you can't necessarily value brands the same way you value traditional companies. And Supreme is is probably one that has a ridiculous multiple on their revenue. No yeah. real, you know, intellectual property beyond maybe their trademarks and no no real ability to enforce uh against knockoffs, which yeah. are abundant Prevalent. with Supreme. Yeah. yeah. So what people are looking to own when they buy a Supreme is the ear of a market, right? Yeah. Supreme has an email list. Supreme has a community of a very, very valuable demographic that's just now aging into um, basically that that 20s, like high spending on fashion demo, yeah. right? So if I'm, um, if I'm Vans, which has had a lot of growth recently as well, right? Yeah you're looking at the opportunity to do these collaborations and basically you're, you're seeing the value as the growth and revenue on your other brands. Yeah. Cause if you have Supreme, it's this, it's this kind of interesting thing where 
you don't want it to get too big. The value is going to grow, but you don't want the product to be too abundant yeah. because it'll lose its value. And that's something a lot of private equity groups don't necessarily understand about how to retain a brand. And Supreme is one of those that builds on exclusivity, and that's why this is so important. But there's a lot of other brands that I know about, and I don't want to I don't want to call anybody out, but there's one that I know about that got invested in by a private equity group. Um, it was in sim- similar space, appealed to surfers, skaters in that world. Um, the founder didn't want to take it to Costco, and the private equity group wanted to. And they fired the founder as CEO and brought in somebody else. And they took it to Costco, they doubled their revenue, and then it went down to a quarter of what it was the following year. And the reason that happens is because when you go to mainstream, you lose your initial base. And that's what yep. gives it the coolness is the people who are initially buying it and wearing it. It's like, I'll give you from the lasso lens, like how we think about it. So when we're growing the brand, we're putting products into the place. We have an initial set of people that buy our products, and then we have ways that we use the products to storytell. Exclusivity is not something we use drastically because our aim is not to be something people can't have, but it's to be an essential for people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So our brand strategy and like the ways you would grow our company are drastically different than if we were to be using exclusivity. If we were to be doing custom collab drops, 100 of each design only, and that's the only thing we were doing. The price point would be higher. We would be, you know, doing a lot more on that side of the ball, but we wouldn't be able to grow our team very much. We wouldn't be able to r- really do a ton other than retain a significant amount of leverage culturally. And I think the next play when you have that is you go down the content landscape and you start, you know, programming yeah. content for your community. You start telling bigger stories around your brand. I think a brand that's done that really, really well is Red Bull. I think they have one of the best content strategies, period. And so, you know, Supreme, I mean, I love it. I love everything they've built. I think uh, their store is right down the street from me. So it's just, it's cool to drive by and see lines outside and that sort of thing. It's just, it's amazing that you can make a thing that when you slap this sticker onto it or this icon or this logo, it's all of a sudden worth way more to people. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing about behavioral economics, right? And understanding it it goes against it actually goes against economic pr- principles, right? Cuz yeah. Supreme is what's considered a, a Veblen good. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that term. But for people it's like the the demand for the product actually goes up as the price goes up. Yeah. And that's the opposite of, of normal, but it, it goes into understanding that even all these principles are great, but once you factor in human beings and human psychology and human insecurity, because the largest market for Supreme are people who are probably insecure with themselves in other ways, and but Supreme gives them that, putting on a Supreme hoodie immediately gives them that which they're seeking, which is acceptance and confidence. And there's not a value you can put on that. And yep. that's that right there is what drives brands like Supreme. It's the same reason why people wear Gucci and Louis. It's to show other people that you have something. Me personally, I don't like really wearing any of those type of brands um, because I don't like 
attention like that. I don't want everyone recognizing me for what I'm wearing because I think that yeah. makes you a target too, right? So, I, um, but they're very different schools of thoughts. I think I'm in the minority, especially when you're looking at, like you said, Gen Z and millennial um, consumers who now are buying luxury and premium goods at a much higher cl- clip than any other generation that's alive currently. Yeah. And just to say it one more time, I, I just can't even begin to express how difficult a flip like this is on a business that is built like Supreme. It just has so much nuance in their business model. It's the kind of thing where you can't do it without the founder involved. So watching this happen for me is very similar to watching the Lakers win that championship this year. I mean, it's flawless execution. It's a ton of preparation. It's why the Carlisle Group is one of the most respected private equity firms in the world. Yeah. That's why they're so huge because nobody else... I would be hard pressed to name one other, more than one other private equity firm that would do this successfully. And it's quickly. It's yeah. been two years, That's you know, hard. and in the, in a recession, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. And one last thing that I wanted to ask you about is I think is the, the stock X component of this, the resale market of goods, because I think part of what makes Supreme so valuable is the fact that it has value in a secondary and, and tertiary and economy, right? Other people can make money off of it without having to pay right? with multiples. What do you think is driving that? Because StockX is making a killing right now, doing nothing except for providing a service for, for these goods. Yeah, that, that's such a great point. And I think one thing to, to kind of outline here is that most of the buyers and resellers are young. Yeah. A lot of this community is young. So when young people who already have insecurities are exposed to the internet where at any moment, whatever video they click, they're going to see somebody who's doing it better than they are, whatever it is, or somebody who's making more money or somebody who's more accomplished or somebody who's wearing cooler clothes. And that's like the, the trend element here is really, really driving into your point to those insecurities and a lot of these kids want to wear the brands because it makes them fit in. It makes them look cool. But, you know, for us, it was like, I'll tell you, like when I was growing up is the Nike shocks. Like that was yeah. the thing, right? Yeah. That was what made you cool. And now it turns into all these streetwear and fashion brands. And now these new kids are starting to make their own brands, tell their own stories. And that's interesting. When you talk about the resale side of this market, it's something that, to be honest, I'm not sure I understand as deeply as I would like to because yeah. it puzzles me because mm-hmm. I'm not, I, th- I think it's part of the values that I grew up under, but um, kind of in traditional, I would say traditional Indian values, it's not uh, looked well upon to wear used clothes. Yeah. Because they, I, I think the superstition is that they still carry the energy or like the luck of the past yeah. person that wore them. And so I've never been into resale for that reason, but it's turning into a huge part of American culture. And I think it's just a way for people to be able to own something even briefly. Like if, if you want to wear the Supreme thing or buy a pair of Jordans that, you know, you might never wear, people might just buy them for the photo shoot and then sell them right back. Yeah. I mean, what's happening is the same thing, you know, 
people are literally who are on the email list and are able to get a Supreme product, they're selling it new, right? They're flipping it on stock. That's why it's called StockX, that they're operating these things like they're stocks. And and like you said, it might be the second or third person before it's actually worn, which which is amazing as well. And it goes to show you, I mean, just the value that people put on um, being respected, being liked, and being recognized. So here's the here's a question for you. Is a product worth more if it's sold at a low price point? Look, okay, let's say we have like a wallet from Supreme. Yeah. Let's say it's sold for 50 bucks and then it's resold for 400. That's the market value of that wallet. Yeah. Is that yeah. worth more than a Louis Vuitton wallet that sells for $400? It definitely is. It definitely is because there's there's an intrinsic value there that's higher than what it's being sold at, right? It's the same it's the same concept of why we buy a stock, right? Buy low, sell high. The fact that that actually exists on something that's actually a, a, a consumption product is one of the most fascinating things about a brand like Supreme. They know that they could sell their product for probably a higher price point than they do, but they don't because they recognize the value that comes with selling it at that price and creating this hoopla in the yeah. secondary and tertiary market. Cause they're not making a dime yeah. off of the second seller or the third seller. And that really, really impresses me that yeah. they're able to recognize that and they don't care because it's, you know, Gordon Gecko's thing. Greed is good. It's like, we don't need to be greedy. A hundred percent. Um, I'm going to move us forward yep. to chat about the versus rap battles. We've got Outcast and Tribe on there. Dude, that's going to be fun. That's going to be really fun. I watched the Rick Ross and 2 Chains one. That was, you that know, was exactly what I expected. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Outcast and Tribe, are they going to get Andre 3K on there for real? Uh, I, would, I would think so. If he's agreed to do it, he's going to come on. You know, and he doesn't do a lot publicly. That'll be a cool one. He doesn't. And you're, and you know, when you're talking about outcasts and tribe, I think they're the most seminal hip hop groups that we've had in terms of creativity, in terms of cultural influence, like what those two groups have done to get them to even agree to versus like, they might as well drop the mic after this one from a hip hop perspective, I think, you know, and then obviously we're not going to have Fife because RIP. Um, but yeah. just, you know, the energy and creativity of Q-Tip, of, of Andre 3000, of Big Boy is going to be amazing. There's actually one coming up before that, that I know you're going to like, which is T.I. and Jeezy, the, the Dude, Atlanta. I mean, they're both so iconic. It's yeah. like, it's so hard to even declare. It's going to be great to listen, though, just to listen yeah. to the stories and the collaborations, because I, that's one thing I love about Atlanta hip hop culture is the unity and collaborate collaborative energy that they have in helping young artists come up. Yeah, 100% agree. Speaking of young artists, um, unfortunately, uh, we lost one, King Vaughn, uh, from the Chicago scene. Um, do you want to paint some color on that, V? Yeah, it's just, it's just I'm tired of hearing these headlines. Um, tired of hearing this, like when somebody's made it out of a bad situation and has their whole life ahead of them. Um, to continue to want to be connected to 
the negative energy that they came from. Um, I don't understand the psychology behind that. Um, part of it is just, you know, keeping authentic. We all have it with our families and other things. Um, it's just unfortunate. We're seeing too many of these young, talented people die from from drugs and violence and all this stuff. Like, I want to see these guys have careers like Outcast and Tribe Called Quest, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be nice, man. I mean, hopefully we'll see that start to happen. I think we've got some good ones like Corday. I'm a huge fan of him. Roddy yeah. Rich, huge fan. We're getting some new guy, DaBaby, huge fan. He's prolific in terms of the amount of music he puts out. Um, I think we'll see a few, but it's definitely tough to see uh, the the real impact of all of this violence that still plagues a lot of our communities. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate. You expect better from America, honestly. Yeah. Um, On an up note, um, Nav dropped emergency tsunami, which I've got to tell you, man, unbelievably, unbelievably good. Yeah, I, I have never felt this way about a nav album but when that the first song friends and family came on i lost my mind yeah i mean when you have the legend mike dean come on and help you with your project um it definitely levels you up he's helped travis Scott. he's helped kanye he's helped so many anybody who's in industry circles knows when you have mike dean come on and yeah and assist with your project. And and I felt the same way, you know, I rooted for Nav because he's Indian, obviously. And it was nice to see a Brown rapper truly break through and be yeah. accepted by culture. Right. Not just be some sort of cool little thing. Um, but I, what I respect about him is he's shown a prolific work ethic. He continues to keep releasing products, continues to keep better, getting better and keep trying to, improve his craft and what he did on this project is shows what hard work um does even yeah. if you're even if you're not as talented as some of the other rappers that are out here which i don't think he is he still works to make yeah. good music yeah 100 percent um on another note we lost uh, alex trebek this week uh r.i.p to him you know, Jeopardy was an amazing show that I watched a ton as a kid and uh, still would check out sometimes when I was bored. But, um, you know, he had I think he had a really great run. I, I'm it's like interesting when older celebrities pass because yeah. there's not the same regret when they've lived these full lives. Like last week we talked about Sean Connery. Yeah. You know, someone who lived a really full life. Um, it's it's not so hard to accept that they've passed on. But when it's, you know, like these young artists, these younger people, that's that's really where the heartbreak hits. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think there's also like a, when, we, when you lose people like Connery and Quebec, I think from a celebrity angle, you find very hard to find people like them, right? Yeah. Like that just did their job. They looked at what they did as being a job. They never let it, make them feel like they were bigger than they actually are. They still maintain their morals, their scruples, they're good people. And it didn't, they didn't let the celebrity take over their lives. And so when you lose people like that, especially in the culture we're in now, where we don't expect very much from our celebrities, yeah. um, it, it does leave you a little nervous, right? Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's the word, but we we are. I'm hoping in, that there are 
people who replace the Alex Trebrecks, replace the Sean Connerys out there because I think it's important and valuable um, for them to just serve as role models um, to others. Yeah. And I will say, I think that that level of celebrity as well is fading. Um, I don't think there's there's going to be more of the Will Smith types of characters in our culture just no. because the media sources we all consume from are so varied now. Yeah. You know, th- there might be people who get as big as these people, but they won't maintain it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then this one's on a personal note. Um, we we shared that Andrew Bogut uh, from the Golden State Warriors uh, had a lengthy NBA career, uh, played in the NBL last year, was their uh, MVP and Defensive Player of the Year in Australia. Uh, awesome dude. Just uh, such a genuine guy. Uh, has uh, joined Lasso as an investor, which is cool. And uh, we've been teasing it too, but we're dropping some merch on Wednesday, 11-11 at 11-11, which is going to be nice. really fun. Uh, nice. So 11's everywhere, you know? Congrats on that, man. I think it's a, it's valuable for a multitude of reasons. You know, Andrew Bogut is a, a cultural icon in Australia, right? He's being the first number one draft pick from that country. Um, and like you said, him being a good guy, I think opens a door for you guys and, and a great door that I hope you guys, basketball culture is unbelievable in Australia. I actually spoke to um, Josh Childress about that, um, who, who plays over there, um, about the culture that's growing over there. And I'm excited to see what you guys do over there and um, for the drop tomorrow. Thanks, man. And hopefully, you know, one day we'll be reading one of these supreme headlines about us. That would be definitely pretty cool. Definitely. I'm definitely going to be there for that celebration. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a big one. <laughs> awesome. Well, that does it for today. We really appreciate everybody for listening. And remember, as always, be you, you as fly. Pilot Boys out. <laughs>